Welcome to School TV, Episode 4, with Jason Whitlock, host of Fox Sports 1, Speak for Yourself, with co-host Marcellus Wiley. Let's get right into it, Jason. Yeah. What's going on with you and social media? And, <laughs> and, and all the names, the the things, all, the people, all the names people call you and all these things. First of all, let me say this. Um, your show is perhaps one of the blackest shows, talk shows, on a network like Fox. How did that happen? And is that an accurate description? Yeah, I, I think the show is def- decidedly black, mm-hmm. uh, intentionally. Uh, but, you know, how it happened is, you know, I had a vision for what I wanted to do uh, after Colin Cowherd, who I was partnered with originally on Speak for Yourself, after he left, I had a vision of what I wanted to do. And I wanted to work with somebody like Marcellus Wiley uh, because I wanted to speak from a black platform uh, so that people could hear me correctly. Uh, sometimes when you are in a setting that's too diverse, uh, you're not heard properly. And, and so for me and my point of view, uh, which is more traditional, uh, which is a bit masculine for these times, I needed to be in a setting where people like could hear me in perspective and I needed to be around the kind of people I've been around my entire life, athletes, uh, driven people, masculine people, uh, sports people. And so, you know, and again, the, the show, we have some white guests, but uh, it certainly is, you know, a black talk show. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Now, I saw you post a picture of a, a black woman who played basketball and you hired her and you hire a lot of people behind the scenes as well, black people. Yeah, give them no, jobs? we have. Now again, we certainly have some people that work with us that that aren't black. You know, I'd say probably half of the support staff is black, half of it is probably white or Asian. Uh, but yeah, we hired Nina Davis uh, because you know I, I like athletes, and uh, you know it's like the Darnell kid that's on the show. Uh, he's from my neighborhood, played football at my high school, played football at my college, uh, a young person that I believe in. And so we've added him to the show. And then Nina Davis was a great basketball player at the University of Baylor, a Wooden Award finalist multiple times, an All-American multiple times. Uh, the Baylor women's basketball coach, Kim Mulkey, has been a friend of mine for more than 20 years. And she recommended Nina as somebody uh, for me to work with if I was looking for uh, a young black woman that uh, could run with the big dogs, per se. And so Nina's working behind the scenes now as we develop her in her television career. But hopefully at some point, Nina will be on air with us talking sports uh, because I want that point of view represented. Uh, and then, you know, we got my Uncle Jimmy, or I call mm-hmm. him Uncle Jimmy, but he, Best, basically, one of my best friends from Kansas City, one of my best friends from the last 20 some odd years. He plays the role of my uncle on the show. Uh, and you know, that that's but there's a bunch of people, but that, 
helps to do the show. Maybe I can say it like this. It's not so much that you simply hire blacks, but I think it's important because of the, the stereotype you get on social media, that you are anti-black, that it's known that you give people opportunities. Now, when you give black people opportunities, it's not that you discriminate against anyone else because you don't. No, I, I definitely don't. All and right. So I, I've certainly given some white people some opportunities as well. But uh, I, I say this kind of jokingly, but there is some truth to it. Generally speaking, when I show up, the black unemployment rate is going to go down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's been my okay. history uh, mm. as a journalist. And, you know, there's a reason why I went over to ESPN to try to help them start the undefeated. I wanted to work. I wanted to help build a, a platform for black journalists to address some issues uh, from a more honest perspective. Uh, that was my vision, and that's why I went back to ESPN. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for me, but the site lives on, and 40, 50 black journalists have jobs at ESPN uh, based off that vision, and that's something I'm proud of. That was your vision? Absolutely. Absolutely. And me, me and the John Skipper, the guy that ran ESPN, yeah, that was definitely my vision. You know, as a as a veteran in the industry, right? You've been on on TV now for how many years? Pro since nineteen ninety eight, maybe national TV for twenty years. Twenty years. Now, should you be commended for the work that you've done and the opportunities? opportunities you have created for people who look like you? Because isn't that better than begging people? Well, Curtis, I'm going to be honest with you, and this will sound like uh, a game or virtue signaling maybe, mm -hmm. but I am commended for it. Mm -hmm. Again, you got to, social media is not the real world, mm -hmm. in my view. That is a world controlled by Silicon Valley and how uh, white liberals and other liberal activists, how they want us to be perceived is what social media is, particularly Twitter uh, and, and the whole black Twitter phenomenon that they created that perception that there's a black Twitter and that black Twitter has a monolithic liberal voice. That's a created thing that, that, because again, if black Twitter was some organic thing, that was really something great and positive. Trust me, white people would be doing it too. Latino people would there'd be a Latino uh, Twitter. There would be an Asian Twitter. There would be all these other kinds. But th there's a certain way that we, uh, that a power group in America wants black people to be seen, and Twitter is a great tool for them it to make us. To that. Yes. Okay. That basically controls our thought at this point. But yeah. Wow. Now, um, your co-host, Marcellus Wiley, yeah. he, he's a former NFL player and former ESPN broadcaster. Yeah. So both of you guys have a lot of history with ESPN. No question about it. And, you know, Marcellus's background is, is, is something that I think, his background and rise is something uh, that I think should be emulated and celebrated coming from Compton, uh, you know, making a really unique decision as a high school athlete, could have gone to a, a Power 5 football factory, 
but decided, you know, I want the academic piece as well. I want people to assume my intelligence, so went the Ivy League route, and then uh, became a football star, took his wealth, and has done amazing things with his entire family, and then created his own Huxtable-like, and you know, I'm not going to run away from the old school Bill Cosby, (laughs) Huxtable-like family of his own. Uh, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to work with Marcellus because of all that he represents. And I wanted to elevate uh, his stature as a role model for other black people because I think he's done things the right way. You know, could this show speak for yourself? Could this show be on ESPN? Would ESPN have a show like this? (laughs) Uh, I think it would be hard with me as the host, because my point of view is so traditional uh, and isn't controlled by Twitter. Uh, and ESPN, particularly under the previous management of John Skipper or whatever, was really, really into the Twitter narrative and being uh, wildly popular over social media. And my point of view just isn't wildly popular over social media. And so I think it would be difficult for ESPN uh, where they used to be, or maybe, and still are to have a show like mine. Uh, and I'm not sure if uh, again, because yeah, I was at ESPN and you know, my point of view was rejected once I got there. That's why I got run out of the, uh, undefeated or whatever. We got to have someone more in line with the liberal point of view and the Twitter point of view uh, than me. And so to have the show that I have and to have uh, the kind of discussions that me and Marcellus have that are, I think, very uh, provocative, but intelligent and fair and objective and primarily coming from a black point of view, I think that would be a little bit difficult for the ESPN. I knew the two different times I worked there where they're at now, maybe they're in a different space, but I I just, again, I I think that one thing that I think black people struggle with is that there is one group that wants to control our thought and very comfortable with us when they can control our thought. And then there's who is that group? Well, it's (laughs) it's it's the left. It's the liberal. They when they control. And then I think what they don't understand about the right is the right. Basically, oh, I can make money. Oh, this can be successful. Oh, I can work with this. That's to me tends to be their first thought. How can I benefit from this? And if you can ever get your mindset in the uh, mind of like, how can I do business with this person? Because everybody, this is a capitalistic society. People are driven by money. And when you can get in that mindset of how I can do business rather than how can I agree with everything this person thinks or says, you know, you can be successful and you'd be surprised the opportunities that are granted you when people are like, Oh man, we see eye to eye on business. And I really don't care what you think politically. 
uh, or socially, <laughs> or socially, or anything. <laughs> it's like, can we do business together? And so, uh, you know, it's funny. People, I say to people all the time, I, and I ask some of our guests, or they'll look around like, "Damn, I can't believe this show." And I go, "And it's on Fox." I, 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 was, <laughs> I was about to say that because Fox and Rupert Murdoch have a very ultra conservative reputation, yet they have two independently strong black men, masculine black men, like yourself and Marcellus on this show. What did it take to make that happen? You have to earn people's trust. You have to uh, present a very good idea that's going to work and that you can get them to buy into and believe in. And you have to show that you're willing to hold yourself accountable and be responsible. And then you would be amazed. People will overlook whatever color you are, whatever your politics are, what your mom and daddy did. It's like, oh man, this person wants to be successful and wants to make money. I can work with that. And so I just think to me, the environment, the culture at Fox is, man, we love good ideas that work. And it doesn't matter who brings them to us. We'll get behind it if if we believe in it and we believe this person's willing to do the work uh, to see them through fruition. And I just think if you look at where Marcellus started from, from Compton, uh, all the way to his rise as an athlete, it's like, oh, that's someone I can believe in. He's shown a track record through his life that, you know, damn whatever adversity is in front of you, that guy's going to be successful. I think if you look at my background, you know, divorced parents, uh, dad uh, uh, didn't graduate high school, mom a factory worker. Uh, I tell people all the time, me and my dad, my senior high school, lived in a one-bedroom, 400-square-foot apartment in the hood in Indianapolis. And the only people coming looking for me were football coaches in terms of taking me somewhere. There were no people from Hollywood running around my neighborhood like, I wonder if there's a Jason Whitlock, we can make a TV star. There were people like, I wonder if there's a football player here that I can bring to my college campus. And so uh, I think my life record, track record, uh, says that like, oh, if given an opportunity, I'm gonna try to maximize it. I'm gonna be a reliable person. I'm gonna be a person of my word. and I'm going to try to do good business. But let me ask you, are these views the mature Jason Whitlock views, or were these always your views? These have always been my views. I'm able to articulate them now in a much more mature fashion, but I'm Jimmy Whitlock's son. And so I, I'm I'm my father's son. Who is Jimmy Whitlock? <laughs> Tell me about Jimmy Whitlock so I can learn about... Jason Whitlock. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, not the same as Curtis Schoon, but he got a lot of Curtis Schoons that was his boys. And, okay, you know, gotcha. my father is a guy. He's a Booker T. Washington Negro. He's going to cast down his bucket and create his happiness right there where he's happy. Mm-hmm. And so my father is someone that uh, worked at Chrysler when I was a very young kid, car company, Chrysler, in the factory, and someone, his supervisor, questioned him about reading the autobiography of Malcolm X on his lunch break. And so my father's reaction wasn't like, F him, or, you know, 
I'm going to go to somewhere and protest. My father's reaction was, oh, I ain't working for nobody again. Ain't nobody black or white going to tell me what book I can read on my lunch break. So my father opened a barbershop called The Knothole, a little small three-chair barbershop. And then the next thing you know, he opened a, a, a bar in the inner city and where he was comfortable for him and his friends. Then he opened a second one. Then when things fell apart, you know, he tax problems, blah, blah, blah. He started working for a friend of his that owned a bar. He got knocked on his ass, and that's when I was living with him. And then he got another opportunity to open another bar in the community where he was most comfortable, the black community in the city. That went well for about 25 years until he passed. 25? Yeah, he built a brand new house in the hood around the people that made him happy. And so he was just somebody that uh, really wasn't into excuses, was like, hey, man, do for yourself, take care of yourself, create your happiness, and not sitting around worrying about what prejudiced white people think or don't think. Because in his world, when he went to his job, or his bar, it was all black. When he went home to his neighborhood, it was all black. When he went out to socialize with his buddy, it was all black. He just didn't have a lot of time to sit around and worry about what white folks were doing because he didn't have a lot of engagement with them. And it's not that he had, because my father, because of some things that happened, not a big fan of white people, but I never saw him disrespect anybody. Uh, he, he, more than being prejudiced or hateful towards white people, my father pretty much spent every day. He wanted to be happy. He wanted to be respected. Anybody that gave him respect, he gave them respect. But, you know, he he just liked his little existence he created here in America. Would he be proud of the man you became? I, I th- Yeah, I think without question. Uh, he'd be very proud. He would think that, you know, uh, for the most part, I represent his views. We we occasionally we got sideways over some of my dating choices, but that's a different subject. <laughs> okay, okay. Let, 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 me, let me ask you this now, yeah. LeBron James. Yeah. What you get a lot of flack because you criticize LeBron. Is is there any doubt? That LeBron is perhaps a top five player in the league. Well, LeBron is either the first or second best player in the league still today at 34, 35 years old. I think that goes without question. So what is the basis of your criticisms of LeBron? Well, as a basketball player, I, I have very few. Now, his there are some personality quirks of his that I love to examine because they impact his basketball career. And so... I'm just, I'm a critic and I'm not, you know, critics have jobs. That's your job. Yeah. Praisers. I I don't know of any jobs called praisers other than a church. (laughs) My aunt's a hell of a praise dancer, Uh, but I'm a critic. That's what I get paid for. And so there's, you can't find anybody, including myself that I don't criticize constantly and nitpick. That's, That's my job. That's what has made me interested and kept me employed the last 30 years. And so LeBron is one of one of, if not the most discussed athlete of the last 20 years. 
and I'm a critic. And so when things uh, are going well for LeBron, I do dish out a lot of praise. But where LeBron is at right now, uh, what has happened to him in the aftermath of the decision, uh, I think has taken him to a place where he's not the best representation of himself. I think he's he's gotten caught up in social media. I think he's gotten caught up in a victim's mentality mm-hmm. that I think is poisonous to us as black people. So LeBron has pivoted, and I think he's misunderstood his rise and uh, has pivoted to a place where he gets criticized by me. Do you think it's it's his place to antagonize the president of the United States on Twitter as a basketball player? Is that his job to speak? Is is he enhancing his role as a player or is he ex- extending it, expanding it into something else? Look, I've said this and this is, Ask me a follow-up if this is a dodge, because it might be a dodge. <laughs> but, but there's very little difference. People get very upset me when I say that. Very little difference between LeBron and President Trump. And that's why they both like to go to Twitter, and they're addicted to Twitter, and they uh, at- attack people in a very primitive, unsophisticated way. You know, I think he's LeBron has called Trump a bum-ass and yeah. things that just aren't very articulate or sophisticated. His criticisms of Trump just aren't. And so I look at LeBron and go, you a lot like Trump, you know? (laughs) Do do, do you think that's coming from him or is he playing to a crowd? Oh, he's certainly playing to a crowd. Mm -hmm. And again, I say that he's been uh, led astray and pivoted and thinks that, and again, but, but it's not just him. I think we as black people have been led astray. We by who? By politics. By uh, we have abandoned God and our religious principles and our religious devotion and thrown ourselves. We think all of our solutions are political. And I just don't. I think our solutions are spiritual and cultural. And that's the disconnect between me and Twitter and a segment of the black population. I believe culture and spirituality are uh, solutions. Politics, no. There was a time that there were laws in place that crippled us. Couldn't vote, couldn't eat here, could you paid taxes but couldn't go to school here, things like And Martin Luther King and that era addressed those laws pretty aggressively. I don't, what I see a, a lot now from Black Lives Matters to Colin Kaepernick, it's like we're protesting for hugs and kisses. And it's like if the, if the white man would just come over here and hug us and kiss us, our life would be better. If you out here protesting for laws and things, specific change that has an end game and a solution, I'm all for it. But if we're just sitting around protesting because white people don't love us enough, that's inappropriate, speaks to an insecurity and an inferiority complex that you have. You don't have a belief in yourself. And I, I take that straight from my father. My father's, all his solutions started with Jimmy Whitlock, not anyone outside. 
fix your own problems first. If the white man loves or hates you is virtually irrelevant. If you're in the right mindset, if you love yourself, you know, you said something about masculinity a few times you referenced it right now. Um, the NFL is a very masculine sport. Is it not? Without question. It's the most masculine thing in pop culture and it's the most powerful thing in pop culture. Are there some sort of effort underway to emasculate NFL players, black NFL players? They, they look, black, the NFL is the largest showcase of black masculinity we've ever seen in America. It's the most popular show on Fox, ESPN, uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS. That's five television networks that the NFL is the number one show on. That's unprecedented in pop culture. That's unprecedented in television history. And so, and it's a showcase of black male masculinity. And I just don't think some people are comfortable with that. And I think if you look at our society as a whole, there's an attack on masculinity. They say there's an attack on toxic masculinity. I say there's an attack just on masculinity in general and football in terms of pop culture is the head of the snake. And yeah, I think football's under attack for those political reasons. What, what is the goal to emasculate such a, a masculine sport? Should we, should we start playing uh flag football? Well, again, I think there's a group, a part of society that has decided that men are the cause of all problems in the world. And let's say that's true, but you also got to give men then credit for the good things in the world. If they get all the blame for everything bad, give them all the credit for everything that's good. Mm -hmm. And so don't try to, well, the bad things are all on y'all and we got to, the good things are on us. I, I think that, uh, you know, the world, there's an element of the world that wants to usher in uh, new leadership, female leadership across the world. It's like the time for man has passed in their mind. And so, again, if there's going to be an attack on any group, Black people are going to be the first people up to get attacked. And so I feel like, and I know white guys will disagree with this because I hear them crying all the time. They <laughs> feel yeah, they feel like they're under the hardest attack. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, y'all don't even know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in my view, we are under the harshest attack. Our masculinity is under the harshest attack. And, you know, football is caught in that collateral damage. Football is a symbol of that masculinity. Without question. And it's it's so powerful in popular culture that if you can bring that down, you have a chance of bringing everything else down along with it. You know, um, Marcellus Wiley had some interesting takes on Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, Kenny Stills. Uh, what, what's the deal with these guys and... Are they part of the attack on the masculinity in football? I I think the that that group that trio, and, and 
this will sound much harsher than it's intended. It's just factual. And some people are unfamiliar with the term. But if you understand the term, I'm not trying to be malicious. They're useful idiots. And if you understand a Marxist, socialist, communist point of view and agenda, you have to have useful idiots. You have to have uh, people that don't know they're being used as Trojan horses to usher in the change that you want seen. And so uh, Colin Kaepernick is really part of the attack on football. There's the, the, the whole thing of like, Oh, he's systematic oppression. And that's what his systemic oppression. That's, that's what this is all about on the flag. No, Colin Kaepernick is a Trojan horse. Let's see if we can get black people to stop supporting football, which is the craziest thing black men could do black women as well. But I'm going to put it primarily on black men, because if you can name me an industry that has been better to the black man than football, I'd love to hear it. It certainly isn't rap and some of this other stuff that's near and dear to our hearts. I, I try to explain to people all the time. I never got a whiff of the NFL, but football came and got me out of that 400 square foot apartment and put me on a college campus. And I got a bunch of friends that football came and got them out of the hood and put them on a college campus. We would have never gotten there any other way. That's thousands of black men, hundreds of thousands of black men who never got a whiff of the NFL, who had their lives transformed through football. Then when you toss in the NFL and how many black millionaires that it creates. And again, these guys may blow all their money and that's on them, but they got it, but they got it. Mm -hmm. And they had, and when they had it, trust me, they're all doing amazing things for their families. Cause I deal with them. I talk to them. I know what football is doing to their lives and to their families' lives. Football has done that in immense numbers and people. Oh, but it's basketball. Basketball has 450 players. The NFL has nearly 2000, 12 to 1300 of them black. Uh, and so there's nothing, wow. there's no industry that's been better to us than football, but over Colin Kaepernick, who again, just factually, this isn't malicious, but just factually, he doesn't know his black father abandoning his white mother gave him up for adoption. A white couple, a lovely white couple in Wisconsin adopted him and raised him in the suburbs. Uh, in California and in Wisconsin. Colin Kaepernick, what Marcellus was articulating and what I've been articulating for three years, man, this guy has a justifiable and understandable identity problem. I'm not mocking him. He has an identity problem and crisis that he's trying to work out by protesting and kneeling and look how black I am. This is the blackest he's ever felt. Oh, the Afro? The, the cornrows, the whole nine yards, the Black Panther outfit on the, the whole, cover of GQ magazine. Curtis, yeah. there's not a black man I know that hasn't grown up with a Colin Kaepernick. We can all see it, but pe- he lives in this little protected social media space where if you talk honestly about Kaepernick, you get criticized. But but and, and I have sympathy for Cap's issues in this American society, trying to work out your identity issues when you're a mixed race, didn't grow up in the black community, I'm sure has felt rejection from both sides. And so he's confused. He has a handler, uh, Ness Nitty, 
that also is his in black. girlfriend. Yeah, his the girlfriend, Egyptian lady. Yeah, yeah, who also is in black, and she's older and more experienced than yeah. him as well, and more experienced in every way with 49ers, the whole nine. Exactly. And so, uh, his handler, who is in black, is trying to help him through his the blackest moment of his life that they've had, and so. I just cap is involved with trying to smear and dirty and hurt the NFL. He he's systematic oppressed. That isn't his handlers. That's not their end game. Why though? I mean, why is he trying to hurt the NFL? The NFL has been good to cap. Hasn't it? It, Not as good as he wanted to be. And so, you know, and so when things were going well for Cap, when he was going to the Super Bowl and, you know, was a star and wearing Beats by Dre's and a brand, Cap was as happy as anybody taking his shirt off and get it tatted up and kicking it and partying with whomever. Once he lost his job, that's when Ness was able to radicalize and him and, and Sean King. Another one yeah. with a white mother and white father as well. <laughs> the birth certificate don't lie. To no, no, no. Curtis, people are, I'm just trying. People yeah, laugh, like, but, but it's just factual. He looks just like his white daddy. Yeah, yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's on. They got pictures of his white daddy who's on the birth certificate. He looks just like him. But Oprah gave him a scholarship to Morehouse. Though. She didn't know. <laughs> Yo, <look laughs> but it's been proven. And so that's another guy. I mean, when you are born to two white parents but have convinced yourself you're black, you have an identity issue. Rachel Dolezal. You have an identity issue. And so, again, I think there's a profile for what Twitter elevates and supports, what social media elevates and supports. If you have major identity issues, Somebody's going to get in your ear. I know how to make you feel black. Mm. Say this. Tweet out this. Stand for this or that or kneel for this or that. And we're going to help you feel really black over Twitter and social media. And young people are addicted to it. And, And to some degree, I blame our generation, man, because I'm 52 years old, Curtis, and, and I don't have kids but I lump myself in here with everybody else. Curtis, I'm looking at, man, we've done a horrible job raising our kids. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. We have to take responsibility for that. This madness we see is a reflection of us. Were we responsible with our young people the way generations before us were responsible for us? I just don't think we have been. I think we set pretty bad examples. Yeah, you know, um, let me see. Eric Reed and Kenny Stills. Kenny Stills. Someone dug up some pictures of him. They didn't have to dig very far. <laughs> Somebody went to his in a dress. IG. Oh, oh, yeah, oh like, like, in, in a dress. Yeah. And he said sometimes he likes to wear dresses. Uh, maybe the guys who are attacking masculinity in the NFL, maybe that's something personal for them, and they're just projecting it. I'm not fully up to speed on the Kenny Stills pictures and things like that, so I don't want to go there. I think at the end of the day, uh, 
the thing, the pictures I've seen and the things that I've told, been told, I don't think it's a coincidence that these guys are either mixed race, grew up a bit disconnected from the black community out in the suburbs. I think Kenny Steele's less than 1% of his high school was African-American. I think he's mixed race. I've seen pictures of him and his girlfriend, and she ain't black either. Uh, I've seen Eric Reed and who he married. And, And so I just, it all goes back to me overcompensating for either not comfortable with their identity, not comfortable with the decisions they've made in their personal life. Uh, I just see an overcompensation of how can I be the blackest thing on social media to make me feel black. And, you know, I would suggest that uh, being black starts at home all by yourself. If you don't feel black, all by yourself at home ain't a damn thing. You can tweet. There's not a knee you can take. There's not a cap Jersey you can wear. That's going to fix that. You have to be good with yourself. And I apologize to all the young people who didn't have a father who didn't connect with their father. It's a tragedy. What has gone on with, our family structure and black kids. And we're seeing a reflection. If there's no man in the home, it's going to be a disaster or a potential disaster. And people get all upset. And I know there's a lot of folks sitting out there that didn't know their fathers. That sounds like an attack on them. I'm not trying to attack you, but show me the society that's ever been built and been strong. That didn't start with a family structure. The patriarchy. The patriarchy. Um, there's a player, from a former player from Ball State, your alma mater, uh, Wendell Brown. Yeah. Now, Wendell is in prison in China. Yeah. How long has he been in prison in China? I think a little more than three years. Uh, but I think Wendell's scheduled to be released here this month or scheduled. That's the last I heard. That was our understanding uh, coming into this year that he was going to be released and sent home here in September. You've been keeping tabs on Wendell? Yeah, I've been keeping tabs on Wendell the entire time. Ball State has been keeping tabs on Wendell and providing Wendell and his family some support. Uh, You know, I've been in contact with the mom and, you know, obviously through my my Ball State connection. I've known Wendell since he was a kid at Ball State. And Wendell's probably 20 years younger than me. But my connection to Ball State football has been unending. And so I pretty much know all the kids that came through the program. And at that time when Wendell played, a very good friend of mine, Brady Hoke, was the head coach. And so I knew Wendell when he was coming up at Ball State. And you know, have followed him and kept up kept up with him for fifteen years. You've you've supported Wendell in his tribulation that he's going through, haven't you? A lot of us have helped. I, I know you don't want to get into <laughs> yeah, detail, right. but, but a lot the, of us. The, have... the point I'm trying to get at is that 
here you are, the guy that people who don't know anything about black people get on Twitter and call you a coon. Yet you're hiring black people. When black people are in trouble overseas, you're behind the scenes doing what you can, whatever it is. We're not going to ask specifics, you know what I mean? Right. But you're there. You're somebody that people who look like you can count on when they know you. How does it feel when they call you these names, Uncle Tom and this, that, the other, and so on and so forth? Does it bother you at all? It, 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 it frustrates, but it does not, Curtis, man, one, because I figured out what social media is and who's controlling it, that helps me lessen my frustration. Uh, and so I just don't believe a lot of the stuff I see over Twitter. That's bought and paid for. It's algorithms. It's Twitter bots. What I represent is a voice in the media space that Silicon Valley wants to diminish because black masculinity and traditional values, belief in God, things like that, they don't want that on a large platform. And so a lot of the stuff you see over social media is just a bat signal to everybody else in the media, particularly young black people, don't be like Whitlock. Or you'll get slammed and smeared this way over your social media. I respond, I don't care. I'm good with God. I'm good with my family. I don't care. I got friends that love me. I don't, some random artificial intelligence or real people that are just idiots that don't know me throwing some names and insults at me. It doesn't do anything to me because again, I'm sitting there going, you know, they crucified Jesus. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> they ain't put me on a cross yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, stamp my hands on, on a, on a piece of wood. And so all they've done is name call me. I can handle this. I'm listening to you. Um, and but I'm hearing uh, you're promoting strong family values and masculine accountability for our communities. Are you a conservative? I'm not political, but my views I think can be fairly called conservative. And again, the the scam that's been run on black people is, and again, when you they. Anytime you say conservative, people, well, that's Ronald Reagan. <laughs> no, what conservative means mm -hmm. like believe in God, believe in prayer in school, believe in family, uh, be believe in the patriarchy. Well, and again, I, I don't told I am the patriarchy. I tell people up front, you know, and it, it, it I pay a price for that with these woke women out here now. But uh, I believe men. And women have unique responsibilities. And I'm willing to live up to mine as a man. I don't, and again, unique responsibilities. Not unequal responsibilities, unique responsibilities. All the responsibilities that apply to a man, I'm willing to take on. Mm. And if that makes me conservative, uh, then I'm conservative because, 
and and I don't run from that. But again, but Curtis, I've never voted because I I really don't believe in politics or politicians. I don't trust any of them. I don't involve myself in politics. But are, are my views conservative, like Booker T. Washington's views are conservative? Absolutely. I'm going to take care of me and my family come hell or high water. They're going to have to put me in a grave. That's what I'll be done taking care of me and my family. Uh, you do have conservative, conservative views, but you're not a proponent for the Second Amendment, are you? No. No. See, a lot of a lot of liberals would be surprised to hear that. No, they wouldn't because I've written about it. Okay. They, they, what they try to put me in a box mm-hmm. and think that all of my, you know, that that I have some ideology or whatever. I I really don't. But no, I'm not a proponent of the Second Amendment personally. I understand though why some people love the Second Amendment and aren't going to let that go because, and it, I used to not understand it, but it's like now that I see what liberals are willing to do to me, someone who's not <laughs> even involved in politics and the way that they've tried to silence me, I get why people are like, Oh man, I ain't giving up this gun because these guys are crazy enough to take everything away. And so I get it to me. I think the Second Amendment has outlived its usefulness, but I get why people don't want to give up their guns and, you know, can't say that I uh, support them, but I understand. Okay. Recently in the news, there's been talk of Jay-Z's deal with the NFL. I haven't really paid too much attention or dug into it too deeply because I'm not really a big Jay-Z fan. But help me understand what that deal is and how is it beneficial to anyone besides Jay and the NFL? Well, just for the record, I've never been a huge Jay-Z fan. (laughs) And I would, you know, I've probably been the most public critic of Jay-Z. You've been the most powerful critic <laughs> I've ever seen because you actually have had some interactions or whatever, but I got to give Jay-Z credit, man. I think this deal he's cut with mm-hmm. the NFL is genius. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think Jay-Z and I'm willing to maybe admit I'll be proven wrong, but I think Jay-Z is pr- is pivoting in a smarter way than Kanye did. And yeah, I'll give him that. Yeah. I'll <laughs> so, give him that for and, sure. And so I've heard Jay-Z say some things over the past month, week, or whatever that have blown my mind. And give me a few examples. Oh, I can give you one is when he said that uh hey look, in order for me to do business, I have to engage with people that I disagree with politically. I agree. That's the only way to do business. I agree. That's, and again, that's that's an obvious statement, but social media has made common sense very uncommon, and they've made common sense very controversial. If you state a common sense opinion, social media will make you, oh, that's the most controversial thing in the world. And so Jay-Z having the balls to say, hey, man, I do business with people that I don't necessarily agree with all the time. That's a big thing because 
we live in this cancel culture right now where, oh my God, if someone disagrees with me, I never want to interact with them ever again. Jay-Z to me uh, is showing a level of intelligence and pragmatism that I didn't know he had. Mm -hmm. And so I can't do nothing but respect it and applaud it. And perhaps what Jay-Z will be able to do just by showing an alliance with the NFL is open these football players minds to the fact, Hey man, you're here to conduct business and make money in the NFL. You're not here to protest and have all your little political agendas realized. You're here to make money. That's what the NFL has to offer you. And so if Jay-Z can get NFL players, because again, in order to bring the NFL down, you got to get the guys inside the NFL to help you bring it down. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been going on. You've got all these former and current NFL players with all this hostility towards the NFL. Oh, it's a plantation. They treat us like <laughs> slaves and blah, blah, blah. And then when you see Jay-Z, who many of these guys consider the freest Negro on the planet. <laughs> yeah. He's running to the NFL plantation. Hopefully that's going to open people's mind like, oh, this ain't a plantation. He's getting we a lot making... of backlash, man. He is. <laughs> yeah, he is. But yeah. I get, there's a lot of young NFL players that are looking like, oh, okay, maybe this is a business that benefits us. And yes, there are some physical sacrifices we make here in the NFL, but is the reward now justify the sacrifice? If we were talking about 20, 30 years ago when guys were making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, the really well-paid guys, maybe it wasn't worth the sacrifice. But but when quarterbacks is getting 30, when Dak Prescott's about to get 30 million a year, <clears throat> it's worth it. And so I think if Jay-Z can open these players' minds to like, no, nah, man, th this, this is our industry for black athletes. And we can... Let's pimp this business all the way out. Let's don't destroy this business. Let's don't be unappreciative of this business. Let's make the most of it. If we can celebrate the drug game the way that we do, Ooh. that destroys and ravages our community, but everybody, the whole music industry, everybody celebrates it. How come we can't celebrate the NFL? It's been a lot better to us than the drug game. You ain't got to put your mom in in pads and get her beat up in a football game, but but there's people in the hood willing to sell your mama crack cocaine. So I, I think Jay Z's move here is significant. I want to support it. I'm tamping down any of my criticism of Jay Z to see how this plays out. I like what he's doing here, and I, I again I think it's a very savvy pivot. Let's dip my toe in the water. I'm going to come over here and mess with Bob Kraft, who I know is a Trump supporter. <laughs> I'm dip my toe in the water and, and see if me and these guys can't do business. That's a better move for us than all of this resistance, kneeling, emotional BS that we're into. You know, um, yes, I've been a big critic of Jay, but I will say this. Um, if Jay or anybody, even LeBron or even Kaepernick, are doing something that's meaningful and positive, 
I will roll up my sleeves and get with them to help them. I just don't believe in the things that they've shown me in the past. But that could always change, and my position would change as a result. Can you say the same? Without, because Jay-Z yep. proves it. I've mm. written all kinds of things blasting Jay-Z. People, I mean, people were blown away. Like, damn, Woodlock's out here defending Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> I've been killing Jay-Z for years. Yeah. But when people do things that I agree with, I don't care who it is. My mm-hmm. worst enemy, if they do something that I think, oh, that's beneficial for us, <laughs> I'm going to be with it. That That's something um, as a community we seem to have lost. You know, Dave Chappelle just had a recent stand-up. Awesome. And he spoke about the cancel culture. And it's, it seems that we have this mentality now that's maybe more prevalent on social media than anywhere else, that if you have opinions that go against what the consensus is for that small group, you're no longer black. Forget that you're no longer wrong. I mean, no longer right. You're no longer black. Is, is this how you see it? Or, and, and, and what is cancel culture to you? Thought control. And it's, it's again, there's a dogma that social media makes you adhere to. And this is why I give Dave Chappelle and his little sticks and stones deal on Netflix the ultimate salute. This dude went in there and said, fuck it. I'm going to crack any joke I want to crack. I'm going, anything that's taboo, I'm going right at it. And he did it because he knows he has that kind of power. Uh, He's got enough equity that it's like, they cancel me, I'm good. I'm going to create some space for other comedians to be comedians. I'm going to take the line so far that everybody else can fall in behind me and they won't seem as crazy as Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. The other thing I give Dave credit for is Dave being a smart businessman. He wants all the audience. You know, Clinton supporter, Trump supporter, uh, black, white, rich, poor. He wants everybody to come to his show. And so he stays away from politics. He just stays out of it. And people, I, on the, I don't know if you saw the back end of his comedy special. He did an interview where he let some cr- a crowd ask him questions. And somebody asked him, what are we going to do <laughs> if Trump get reelected? And Dave goes, I'm going to get another tax break. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he went on to describe and talk about like, hey, man, y'all worried about one person and his Twitter feed. What about the millions of people or whatever, if we're not worried about the millions and the whole, why are we worried about one guy? And it, it was just a clever way of just saying, man, y'all have overdosed on Trump. Y- y'all are running around chumping, uh, chasing Trump around and you're not looking at what's going on behind your back. All kinds of decisions are being made. All kinds of new cultural norms are being established that perhaps you don't agree with and, but you're running around chasing after Trump and don't even care that all your cultural norms are being reshaped. And, and again, we have created particular it's throughout American society, but it's most acute in our society. 
we have been convinced as black men and women Mm -hmm. that we don't need each other. That's the most toxic, poisonous, dangerous creation Uh, we could have. We're on the precipice of self-destruction if that takes root. How is it not? When baby, a, a girl walks in with a baby and no one asks who, uh, if it's a husband or anything like that, who's the daddy? Baby daddy culture, baby mama culture, uh, no mama, no daddy culture, grandmama raising the baby, auntie raising the baby, uh, some people, some white folks from Wisconsin raising the baby. Th- that's our culture. And uh, we're not even trying to address this because we, unless Trump's out of office, nothing can be fixed. And that's just crazy. You, if Trump leaves office, one way, I still need to lose weight, Curtis. I can't lose no weight till Trump's out of office. Yeah. This damn McDonald's is just too good for Trump's yeah. um, <laughs> let, let me ask you, man. We wrap it up. Uh, the black community, first of all, say it for the listeners. Do you love black people, Jason? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. <laughs> I wouldn't love myself if I didn't. And I'm going to just tell you the other thing, man, in terms of the way my parents, Mm -hmm. very good parents. My mother is one of the greatest mother. I put her right up there with Mary in terms Mm -hmm. of being a mother, in terms of the foundation and support that she provided me as a child to become the man that I am. Greatest parent you could have. My father, tremendous a role model and example for me on how to be a masculine man. Uh, I want that for everybody. Mm-hmm. And the the way they showed me love wasn't through, man, you're the greatest thing that ever happened. Every, it wasn't every day of them. My father most of the time was like, I, I hate I hate this word, so I hate to use it. But he's like, nigga, pull your pants up and make sure you dress right and blah blah blah. That my father was critical of me constantly because he loved me. He tried to correct every little mistake that I made. My mother to this day, my father's past. My mother to this day, sometimes where we get crossways is because of her criticism, and the criticism comes out of love. My mother worships me. My mother's everything she sits on, drives, looks at, or what I provided. She loves me. Very critical of me. <laughs> and so a lot of times people criticize the thing they love the most because they care about that the most. And so a lot of times people get us, oh, why are you so critical of LeBron and these black athletes? Because I fucking care about them. I want them to do the right things. And so that leads me to criticism. And that's, again, because so many people have been unparented, they can't recognize what it is I'm doing. Tough love. Yes. (laughs) It's the only thing that works. I'm just, all this worshiping of kids, it doesn't work. That's why we have so much chaos in this world. 
is, and again, that, that doesn't mean, cause my parents weren't, they were very good to me, but they stayed in my ass. So school TV viewers, uh, Contrary to popular belief, <laughs> Jason Whitlock loves black people. And Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Curtis. All right.